In the dim light of the tavern, Constantine the dwarf held the fragment of the golden ceremonial blade. Only he could make out and understand the emblem that was etched upon it, the symbol of Clan Arkadin, an ancient and lost clan of dwarves. Legend had it that 2,000 years earlier, Chief Boris Arkadin led his clan in battle against the evil sorcerer Barkovian, deep into the heart of Etheria, and they never returned. And for a dwarf, a clue leading to this ancient lost dwarven settlement is irresistible. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. There were three extremely important things that we were doing with our last session. The most important thing we were doing was introducing a new player character. We lost Call to the Wizard in the last session, and so Grayson came up with a brand new character, a bard, a half-elven bard, who has multiple names. The easiest of which uh, that we're using is Jarrus, so I'm just going to call him Jarrus for now. They come from a, a far northern land that has more of sort of a, a Viking feel to it. This is a, a bard of the College of Swords. Instead of swords, though, he wields twin hand axes. We've worked out something where everyone was getting kind of magic items, so I didn't want this new character to be behind on that, so he has these twin uh, magic items, which we developed that have kind of a backstory and all that. The character has left that land and traveled far south and is in this sort of backwater mining town of Deadfall. And he's working in the local tavern. And he does that as a means to both help the tavern owner drum up business because there's lots of folks that will come and visit him. But he's connected to the Thieves Guild and he's kind of a mover and a shaker to a certain degree. But he owes Auntie Rudwilla, the, the hag that Mir serves, a favor. And the favor she's calling in is to provide forgery services to our party. So they're coming to this tavern, the Black Iron Inn in Deadfall, to seek out Jarrus's forgery services. And as a result, his debt to Rudwilla will be paid. Simultaneous to that, one of his contacts comes to Jarrus and tells him that a couple of his people were mining in a, in a brand new vein where no one was supposed to be, and they uncovered what looks like an ancient structure underneath the hills within this iron mine. And as proof of what they found, he brings forth this golden shard of a, of a ceremonial blade. The, the shard is worth some money some coin all on its own because it's pure gold but it has these etchings on it and he does say that the men who uncovered this dungeon were uh extremely put out by it they had a real creepy feeling coming out of there and they have no desire to go back so they're just looking to get paid for where the dungeon is as well as handing over this valuable shard but they're fairly ignorant folks and they're looking for about 50 gold jarris is an interesting character he he's a lot more rough and tumble than called a ever was, but he still has a, um, a secretive nature to him. He sends in this uh, compatriot 
of his to pretend that he's Jarrus to see what they want before admitting who he is, which I think is, you know, very telling about the character. The party's able to suss it out through insight checks and whatnot, and ultimately they're able to parlay, and it's a fairly good introduction to the character because I think it meets expectations. If you're coming to a backwater mining town to meet a forgerer so that you'll be able to properly transport yourself over the uh, the, the rootlands, you're going to expect a certain sort of, I think, Moss Eisley type of feel to things, and I think that came across pretty well. What Jarrus provides to them, in addition, is this opportunity with the with the shard of the blade. So yes, he's able to do the forgery service for them, and we'll get to that. But first, there's this immediate opportunity to get into this dungeon and per- perhaps gain some plunder. At least that's pretty much all Jarrus is into. But when Constantine gets the blade, and I mentioned this during the prep journal, what the shard represents is something much, much more for the dwarf Constantine. It has clues to this lost dwarven clan, the clan Arkadin. And, you know, we've been looking for, I think, a broader hook for the dwarf Constantine, and he has has this major thing in his backstory that's sort of a default. He's part of a nearly extinct race of of beings. And Clan Arkadin could be something that says, well, if the legend turns out to be true and that there's another clan under old Etheria, the region the, the party's currently in, it could very well be that he's not as alone and they're not quite as extinct as previously thought. And that's something that would be hard for any player, I think, to just completely ignore. And certainly Constantine played it up. He immediately paid 40 gold to get the location, to get the the, the ceremonial blade, and to to just drive the party to do this. This is something they had to do. But the primary goal is to get Jarrus, the bard, into the group and integrated in a way that's meaningful and will allow him to stay with them long term and go with them when they move away from Deadfall and continue to pursue the Balnexicon. But before any of this happens, a key thing occurs, and it's probably the more dramatic portion of the of the session. Joe, the player running the half-orc fighter, Bren, had felt that his half-orc would realize that a lot of things were being kept from him, would be pretty pissed off about it and want to confront the rest of the party about all their secrets. At the top of the list, Constantine's holding back of the contents of the Iron Coffer from the very, very beginning of the campaign. And so he requested that there be a point along the journey between the Gromengast swamps and Deadfall, where the party can take a little bit of a rest... He didn't want to do it in the swamp amongst Rudwilla and her people, and he didn't want to do it when they got to Deadfall. Something in the middle where he could raise the issues that he felt needed raising. That was one of the main things that happened, with Bren sort of calling them out on, you opened this iron box and didn't tell me anything about it. As well as calling out Mir on... Hey, there. There's some some creepy things going on with these people you're connected to in the swamp. There, there. These are not good folk. I mean, your auntie is a is a hag for God's sakes. And also calling out the shadow sorcerer on what we'll call her sort of shady dealings and and how she was acting odd. There was a little bit of a controversy because he called her out directly on being freaked out whenever the faithful of Simeona get brought up, but truth be told, he probably wouldn't have realized that because she's got a pretty high deception score, and so we really had to back that up to just be about, well, hey, you've been acting a little squirrely. 
So that confrontation was kind of interesting because as far as I can tell, it did not land on any real resolution, any functional resolution. Bren didn't have a thing he was specifically going for other than to say, I just want to be kept in the loop. I don't want everyone to keep so many secrets. And I got the sense that even though no one came right out and said, hey, yes, we've been keeping secrets from you and we won't do that in the future they did get to a good place where they continued to share some information and it seems like there's there's been a progress in how the party deals with each other and how much they trust each other he shared with them part of his backstory which means they now know about the shield of Fidelis, which is a, a specific thing that his clan of half-orcs used to possess and that he would like to possess again. A knight, it comes from a knightly order of half-orcs in the distant past connected with Etheria. So, you know, his whole thing and his connection to the royalty of Etheria really came to the fore, which was an interesting reveal. No one else really shared like any real deep things, but it seemed like they had come to a general agreement that moving forward they would be keeping less secrets from each other. But it was an interesting dramatic scene between the characters as they confronted each other about this, with Constantine holding his ground saying, you didn't really need to know about anything and we didn't know anything about it. We just, they technically had opened it and found out what was inside and didn't really share that with anyone other than called up in in the end i i think it was a uh it was a point of contention that uh that got ironed out in the end i believe they've gotten to a place where their group is much tighter than it was before i'm taking these things out of order because I'm placing them in the order of importance. So something that happened in the middle of the session where we get introduced to the brand new PC, I brought up first because that's the most important thing. This interaction between the remaining members of the old group occurs before they even get to Deadfall and is probably the second most important thing that happened in the session. The other two things that occurred bookend the session. The very first scene is actually just between Mir and Auntie Rudwilla. And this occurs, obviously, before they leave the Gromengast Swamp, and it's me seeding a potential conflict in the future. One of the things that I'm very aware of is that the Hags are evil. They're evil with a capital E. So having Mir work for them can't be something where it's all lovely. And there, there's a clear conflict between the faithful of Semyana and what the Fae want, and the Fae are currently being led by these hags, which generally means where the Fae stands in this. This is more like being sandwiched between two evils. I've gone out of my way to make it not overtly evil all the time, because I don't think that's the way evil rears its head. Evil is often couched within reasonableness and regular society. It's there, but it's not like a, a mustache-twirling villain all the time. Evil folks, human-type evil folks, they don't think they're evil, right? There's all kinds of signs that things are fine. But that being said, they are supernaturally evil. Hags are, at least. And so I wanted to make sure that this came about, that they had nefarious purposes. Two things. First, she brought him in to her hut to introduce him to an emissary of hers. And I describe how dangerous this person felt. Just being in their presence made Mir extremely uncomfortable. They never spoke. They sat with a dark cloak. And he could see inside the cloak that 
they were wearing a mask, like a porcelain smiling mask with a mustache and a small villain, uh, a small, <laughs> small villain. That tells you exactly who this is, but their name was Fearsmith, and they are a very powerful fae. And when I get around to introducing them specifically to the group, I can't wait for the moment when this creature takes its mask off to reveal what it is underneath. I think that's going to be just a, a great, terrifying moment because the Ark Vermeer has got to be learning that he's working for the bad guys. That's going to be personified in this, this character of Fearsmith. Now, Bruce, being a great player, made a uh, wisdom saving throw on his own. I didn't ask him for one. He's like, I'm going to do a wisdom them saving throw and he rolled really bad on it so he basically says like he pissed himself based on the amount of fear coming off of this creature the next thing that auntie rudwilla did as she was showing mir out of her hut is she gave him three eggs and I describe them as very strange-looking eggs. They kind of had these uh, discolorations on them. And she said, when you get to Borlane, which is the town that they're going to, to in order to find the Balnexicon, when you're leaving Borlane and you have no intention of going back, I want you to crack one of these eggs and drop it down the well in the center of town. So Mir says, you want me to put this in there you you want me to put this in their water supply you're looking for me to foul their water supply and he was really creeped out by this and of course he should be and she says once you see once you meet these people in Borlane you'll understand why so i've set up a couple of seeds here with mir and the future pursuit of the balnexicon i've set up the fearsmith and i've also set up this conflict of will he without really knowing what he's doing be willing to crack one of these eggs and drop it down the well because she also said if along the way these eggs should be cracked you should destroy what's inside immediately with fire to protect yourself so he knows it's extremely dangerous now the, the very last thing and oddly thus far the the least important thing has been the dungeon itself we were able to get into the mines and into the dungeon i decided to uh utilize a side quest from the the published adventure out of the abyss it's it's basically like a, a temple to um jubilex and there's a whole bunch of slimes inside of it and so the party's been slowly moving through and they've come across a couple of gray oozes and that's as far as we got. Now, while the gray uses are doing a little bit of damage, overall, there, this is this is not really a very hard dungeon. So before this session and next, I'm going to have to up the game. So this is a little bit more challenging. But it's certainly creepy for them. And it's been more about searching and trying to find clues, trying to find other things that relate to the shard of the ceremonial blade. But one of the very, very cool facets of that dungeon is the introduction of a sentient gelatinous cube. And there's this great image of it with these two eyeballs floating inside of it. And it's, for lack of a better term, friendly. You know, when the party encountered this gelatinous cube, it was a very different kind of encounter, and they very rapidly were able to communicate with it. It's telepathic. And they were able to ask it questions, and it's been a little hard because it's a brand new life form. But in general, I, I think it, it turns the, the standard gelatinous cube encounter completely on its head in that it's about a parlay. And 
now they have this ally who's sort of following them through the dungeon, who they're afraid will turn on them at any moment, and they'll have to kill it. But for now, it's kind of a strange pet. We ended with them uh, fighting one more Grey Ooze before they head into the more dangerous parts of the, of the dungeon, and that was the end of last session. So what worked, what didn't work, what are the lessons learned? I think the thing that worked best was having the brand new PC be a conduit to a valuable side quest adventure. And really the entire way we introduced Jarrus. It felt fairly organic to me. We had the time last session to be able to introduce the need for forgery and therefore um, this character that can forge papers of transit so that they wouldn't continuously be harassed moving across the rootlands. The, the hook of the, the lost dwarven clan was something that resonated. I, I figured that it would, uh, but you can never be sure how focused the party would be on pursuing the, the original quest if they would say, look, we don't want to take any kind of a divergence. But in this case, I think they, they really took the bait and everyone was kind of into going to find out what, what's going on here. They leaned into meeting Jarrus. There were a lot of really cool little interactions between them and him in the inn in Deadfall. I think he fit in pretty well, and their initial dealings with him as they got into the dungeon, um, he just kind of, you know, fold the character folded into the group. I don't know why I'm so pleasantly surprised by how well that worked, because the, the players are, of course, all working towards making that happen, because they want to integrate Grayson who of course is not new to them, back into the group with his new character. But I think the way Grayson set up his bard helped to facilitate that really well, as well as the uh, receptivity that all the players had in getting the player back into the group. It's always heartening to me to see how players can kind of take on a little mini DM role in situations like this and help to facilitate the story. And I, I think as a key lesson learned, you know, for for players, the more they can do that, the more they can be shepherds for the story as well. I hear so much things that I, I read online and whatnot. The, the whole problem with players saying, well, I'm just playing my character as an exoneration point for difficult things. I think if players more took the attitude of, yes, I'm portraying this character, but I'm also one of the storytellers in this game, and I'm trying to help facilitate things as well as you know drive towards more dramatic moments where everyone's enjoying themselves, most players naturally, when they're integrating a new player character into the group tend to take that role on and take it more seriously and it tends to make for a better session. What didn't work so well isn't really a thing that didn't work so well but I'm, I'm becoming more and more sensitive to the different play styles of different players and you do have the three pillars. You have social interactions, you have combat, and you have exploration. And honestly, the way most D&D games work is there's combat as first, a distant second could be either social or exploration, and they probably trade off tied for second place, at least a lot of the games that, that I've been in. It's an interesting thing as I think about the trade-off between let's just let's just drill it down to combat and social interactions for a moment because I was also listening to interview with some folks from Wizards of the Coast who are talking about games that they like and and these folks I would classify them as not old school players but very new school players players that are are from the past 10 years in terms of their experience 
it's interesting because there's this there seems to be this this feeling saying like hey i don't actually enjoy combat that much whereas i think more old school players combat was the thing and i think it really comes down to conflict resolution as opposed to thinking of it as social or combat but that being said i'm noticing that i i have this mix of very old school players who really enjoy the combats which isn't to say they don't enjoy the social interactions because they do but their primary thing is hey let's let's get into it right and then i have uh, a couple of players who seem to be less into the combat None of this is a judgment on anybody. This is all fine. Working to find a proper balance so that either combats have more role-playing in them or finding a way throughout a session to have a nice balance between the social interactions and the combats. And I, I think it's probably not one or the other, but both of these strategies to say, try to balance any session so that it has elements like more social NPC interactions alongside prospective combats and in both case try to number one bring conflict resolution into the social interaction so that it's not just chatting with with a merchant which would would be the definition for me of a social interaction that doesn't really have much in the way of conflict resolution the outcome's a big old shrug for most players it's something that could be handled by not role-playing it at all. You just say, hey, I, I buy this for 10 gold, great. Or do you want to go through the haggling process? So saying, let's elevate the social interactions so that they're a little more about the drama and the conflict, as well as bring more role-playing into the combat encounters, such as it's not just about the numbers and combat. There's personalities on the other side that are that are doing different things, saying different things. There could be social interactions within the combat. As a lesson learned, I'm starting, it's not so much about what happened in this session as much as I'm just really clued in now to my five players, what they enjoy, what they're, they're into, what kind of gets their juices going, and making sure that I'm serving those needs session after session. So overall, a very successful game session where we were able to get into the introduction of a new character. We laid the seeds of future conflicts, as well as introduced what I hope will be something of a frontline motivation for our dwarven ranger in terms of finding this lost dwarven clan. We left off in the middle of the dungeon. Uh, it got pretty late by that time. For the next session, we're going to have to really work through some ways to spice up this dungeon. I can't run it strictly as written because I need to integrate it into what I'm doing. And I have a, a bunch of thoughts on how I can bring that a little bit more to life, make it a lot more challenging, given that I've got a bunch of third and fourth level characters as opposed to like first and second at this point. But in their future are things like black puddings. I'm thinking that there's an opportunity to throw some undead, and I haven't used undead in the campaign at all yet so this would be a good opportunity to do that and once they get out of it you know i'm gonna have to look at some tunnels and this is where i can bring forward my idea of the of the crothix which is a, a monster i've always enjoyed and i think that could have a really cool chase a race through the through the tunnels to escape before a horde of crothix can come and, and eat the party <laughs> so we have that to look forward to Crothics and oozes and undead. Oh my.
This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help out at all, the absolute best thing that you can do is give us a review on iTunes. At this point, just looking to elevate the profile of the audio journal and get some other folks listening in. As always, you can reach out on Twitter at Anatomy Camp, or you can go to the Podbean website. You should see the link in the description and leave us a comment. Or you can reach me directly by email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, thanks for listening.